This week, medical associations argue for vacating No Surprises Act arbitration rules, reorganalized AMC refi options, Mallinckrodt Okthar claimants try to appeal denial of antitrust and RICO claims directly to Third Circuit, Peloton releases earnings. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Julian Boulown. For this week's deep dive, Reorg's Mike Legg, Karen Long, and David Mayo join us to discuss the current state of play of third-party releases in bankruptcy, reviewing recent decisions in Purdue Pharma, Asena Retail, and Mallinckrodt, as well as reviewing the ongoing case of LTL management and other Texas two-step bankruptcies. It's Friday, February 11th. On Tuesday, the American Medical Association and the American Hospital Association filed a combined reply in the consolidated surprise billing litigation, arguing that the interim final rule implementing the arbitration provisions of the Federal No Surprises Act should be vacated or stayed pending judicial review. A number of provider groups have challenged the interim final rule's presumption in favor of median in-network rates as a thumb on the scale in favor of insurers and other payors and hinted it could have devastating consequences on out-of-network reimbursement and jeopardize the viability of emergency providers and air ambulance services. Federal agencies defend the rule as advancing Congress's intent to reduce out-of-network reimbursement rates and thus insurance premiums and the federal deficit. The AMA and AHA argue that federal agencies' interpretation of the act is contrary to its text, design, history, and intent, and that, by adopting the interim rule, Federal agencies resurrected the congressionally rejected benchmark payment concept in the form of a presumption in favor of the Statutory Qualifying Payment Amount, or QPA, a proxy for median in-network rates. The AMA and AHA assert that Congress directed the arbitrator to consider six factors when determining the proper out-of-network reimbursement rate, with the QPA being just one factor among many. The AMA and AHA say that the federal agencies incorrectly rewrote the statute, compelling the arbitrator to select the offer closest to the QPA unless there is credible information that clearly demonstrates a substantial likelihood that the QPA is an inappropriate rate. Judge Richard Leon has ordered the federal agency defendants to file a compliant reply brief in support of their cross motions for summary judgment for both cases by February 18th. This week, Reorg published an analysis of AMC's potential financing options following its first lien debt refinancing. After the 1L refi, the company has the ability to repurchase its $1.5 billion of 10% second lien notes to 2026, which account for about 40% of the company's pro forma annual cash interest. AMC, for its part, is in a position to take out the notes, as its liquidity position and prepayment capacity under its existing debt documents exceed the principal value of the 2L notes, which traded at $0.93 as of February 8th. Reorg's analysis takes into account how a January box office slump and a 2022 film slate weighted toward late spring and the second half would weigh on AMC's liquidity and ultimately its ability to repurchase the 2L notes. If you are interested in accessing Reorg's in-depth analysis of AMC and other distressed companies and situations, please reach out to a Reorg sales representative. Last Friday, Akhtar Insurance claimants Humana and Atestor asked the District of Delaware for leave to directly appeal to the Third Circuit Judge Dorsey's decision sustaining the Mallinckrodt debtors' objections to their antitrust and RICO claims. According to the Akhtar claimants, their appeal raises a critical and unsettled question of antitrust law that the Third Circuit should promptly resolve. Judge Dorsey's ruling on the administrative claims asserted by Atestor and Humana, which totaled hundreds of millions of dollars, paved the way for confirmation of Mallinckrodt's plan earlier this month. According to the Akhtar claimants, Judge Dorsey's finding that they lacked antitrust standing because they could not prove that the Federal Drug Administration would have approved Synact then, but for Mallinckrodt's acquisition, 
conflicts with various district court decisions in the Third Circuit, and would immunize antitrust offenders who snuff out nascent competition by allowing them to later exploit the intrinsic ambiguities in the regulatory process. The claimants suggest that the Third Circuit should adopt the standard employed by the D.C. Circuit, which does not require a plaintiff to precisely reconstruct a product's hypothetical development in a world absent the defendant's exclusionary conduct, and requires that, to some degree, the defendant is made to suffer the uncertain consequences of its own undesirable conduct. Peloton Interactive on Tuesday released its second quarter earnings for fiscal 2022, reporting revenue of about $1.13 billion, up 6.5% year-over-year from about $1.07 billion. The company reported in its shareholder letter that the increase in revenue was driven by higher subscription revenue and the contribution from Precore, partly offset by a decline in connected fitness product sales. The company also reported second quarter adjusted EBITDA of negative $266.5 million, down from about $117 million in the prior quarter period. On the earnings call, CFO Jill Woodworth said the company's $800 million of annual run rate cost savings is expected to be fully realized by the end of fiscal 2024. Woodworth said approximately $300 million of cost savings would come from changes in procurement, manufacturing, and logistics. She also said approximately $500 million of cost savings would come from a reduction of operating expenses, such as workforce headcount, marketing, and software cuts which the company hopes to accomplish by fiscal 2023. Woodworth also added that the company expects to end the year with 3 million subscribers. Management also said it expects demand in the second half of fiscal 2022 to be softer because of continued post-COVID effects. The company will purposely reduce marketing spending in the back half of the fiscal year to better understand the current demand environment. Woodworth also said that Peloton does not intend to rely on capital markets for growth and that management expects positive cash flow in the future driven by EBITDA improvements. She further added that Peloton is comfortable with its current balance sheet position and expects to end fiscal 2022 with $1.2 billion of cash and an untapped $500 million under its revolver. Top red stories this week included Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman clashes with Texas two-step defenders at subcommittee hearing, asbestos claimant counsel calls two-step loophole that could swallow bankruptcy code. Analysis of change of control secured debt capacity under Cole's notes if company is acquired, Athena Health's new notes illustrate extreme version of weaponized asset sale covenant, APX, ARCO initiations, AMC, McAfee primary reviews. Seadrill's John Fredrickson offers to take over remaining 60% in northern drilling following mandatory offer trigger. Teva settles Texas opioid claims for $150 million in cash installments, $75 million in product. Now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. Happy Friday, February 11th, as we head into the Super Bowl weekend and look ahead to next week with a very busy schedule of earnings to be released and hearings. Turning to court hearings first, a week-long trial will begin on Monday, February 14th in Johnson & Johnson subsidiary LTL Management Debtors Texas two-step bankruptcy case. The top claimant committees and personal injury law firm Arnold & Itkin are seeking to dismiss the Chapter 11 filing, which they say was made in bad faith and constitutes an abuse of the bankruptcy process. Trial on the Intosat debtor's objection to former C-Ban Alliance partner SES America Com's $421 million claim is slated to resume on Monday, February 14th and Tuesday, February 15th, after a full five days of trial this week. On Wednesday, February 16th, there will be a hearing on the Alto Mipo Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors motion to extend its challenge period under the final cash collateral order for an additional 60 days until April 1st. That motion is strongly contested by the debtors along with a group of senior secured lenders and others. 
Also on Wednesday will be a hearing on the PWM property management debtors' second attempt to get court approval for retaining Hulahan Loki as their investment manager. The Stoneway Capital debtors will seek a 28-day extension of their exclusivity periods on Thursday, February 17th. The debtors filed their first plan of reorganization this week, the terms of which they reached after extensive negotiations with major stakeholders. The debtors say they expect a fully consensual plan confirmation process. Purdue Pharma will be in court on Thursday, February 17th to seek a short extension of the litigation injunction entered in the cases from February 17th to March 3rd to facilitate ongoing mediation between the Sackler family and the states appealing the plan confirmation order. As for earnings, they will be reported on Monday, February 14th by Avis Budget Group and on Tuesday, February 15th by Grupo Era Mexico. On Wednesday, February 16th, a number of companies will release their earnings, including Neiman Marcus, Antara Midstream, Martin Midstream, Antara Resources, and Community Health Systems. Weatherford International, Multiplan, Rheology, and Cooper Standard Automotive will report their respective earnings on Thursday, February 17th. That's it from me, and it wouldn't be from Los Angeles without a shout out to the Los Angeles Rams. Go Rams! Back to you in New York. For this week's Deep Dive, Reorg's Mike Legg, Karen Long, and David Mayo join us to discuss the current state of play of third-party releases in bankruptcy, reviewing recent decisions in Purdue Pharma, Ascena Retail, and Mallinckrodt, as well as reviewing the ongoing case of LTL management and other Texas two-step bankruptcies. Hi, I'm Mike Legg, an analyst with America's Core Credit by Reorg, and for this week's Deep Dive, I'm joined by my fellow analysts, Karen Lung and David Mayo, to discuss the state of play on third-party releases given recent developments in the field. Today, we're going to review New York Southern District Judge Colleen McMahon's decision vacating the Purdue confirmation order, which struck down non-consensual third-party releases for the Sackler family, a district court decision from Judge David Novak of the Eastern District of Virginia, and a recent decision by Judge Dorsey of the Delaware Bankruptcy Court in Mallinckrodt. We will also discuss related implications in the LTL management and other, quote, Texas two-step cases. So backing up, what are third-party releases? We're all likely familiar with garden variety releases, which are the essence of settlements where a party releases a right or agrees that another party is no longer bound by an obligation. Also fairly standard is the idea that a bankruptcy plan functions as a super contract, dividing the bankruptcy estate pie among creditors and interest holders. At the edge of this concept are the parts of a bankruptcy plan, releases, equitation, and the plan injunction that impact the rights of non-debtor third parties. The most common example of this is the releases that a debtor's officers, directors, and professionals receive in conjunction with confirmation of plans. Bankruptcy court's authority to include third-party releases, constitutionally, jurisdictionally, and statutorily, has been contested for decades in long-standing circuit splits. For example, the Fifth, Ninth, and Tenth Circuits reject any authority to grant non-debtor releases outside the asbestos context, while a majority of other circuits have that have addressed the question also permit channeling injunctions and third-party releases in some form, but with significant qualifying, quote, rare case or other exceptional circumstance limitations, including the first, third, fourth, sixth, seventh, and 11th circuits. The cases we discussed today are a great way to get into some of the nuance of these various positions. So Purdue, fortunately, this case has it all. It's billions meets Ozark, the drama of a billionaire family and the tragedy of the opioid epidemic. It just might be enough to make even non-bankruptcy nerds care about third-party releases. Apologies, David, but Purdue is really the big deal here. 
the fundamental viability of non-consensual third-party releases received by the Sackler family in the case who own Purdue were front and center in that case. So we'll start with Karen. So take us away, Karen. Please catch us up with some background on why third-party releases are so important to the Purdue bankruptcy and frame up Judge McMahon's decision. Well, Mike, you're right. The Purdue Pharma bankruptcy is quite a story. Just for purposes of our conversation today, uh, the key question presented by the story is, can the Sackler family, which owns Purdue, obtain a third-party release, like the ones you talked about, related to the family's role in the American opioid crisis? Can the family use the company's bankruptcy to block lawsuits against the family and uh, family members' trusts, even though the family members themselves haven't filed for bankruptcy? Just some quick background on the case. Purdue Pharma is the maker of the narcotic painkiller OxyContin, a drug that's played a huge role in the opioid crisis in the United States. When the company filed for Chapter 11 in 2019, it was really a major event in the legal history relating to claims arising out of the opioid crisis. The first corporate opioid crisis bankruptcy, if you want to call it that, was Insys Therapeutics earlier in 2019, but Insys product was an under-the-tongue fentanyl delivery spray. So it didn't have nearly the reach and impact of OxyContin pills. Purdue is owned by the billionaire Sackler family, members of the family who had director and executive roles, oversaw Purdue for decades, including when the company pioneered innovative marketing strategies for opioids. Uh, it's important to point out here that Purdue has no funded debt. All of its liabilities arise out of opioid claims or substantially all. And when Purdue filed for Chapter 11, it faced thousands of lawsuits tied to the company's role in developing, making, and marketing OxyContin. Many of those suits named as defendants, both the company and members of the Sackler family. Purdue has hundreds of thousands of creditors. That includes states, cities, Native American tribes, the US government, and individual personal injury claimants. Uh, over 600,000 contingent opioid-related proofs of claim were filed in Purdue's Chapter 11 cases, asserting trillions of dollars in claims. Wow, Karen, that's just a huge number. So I guess Purdue's bank Chapter 11 plan would deal with all these opioid liabilities by establishing uh, a ver variety of trusts for the benefit of creditors and compensate these personal injury claimants. So I guess approximately $5 billion in value would be provided to those opiate abatement-oriented trusts, and a lot of that value would come from the shareholders, the Sackler family. Why is right. that not enough money to buy them what they were looking for? Well, exactly like you described. Uh, one pillar of the plan is a settlement with the Sackler family. So we, we won't get into all of the details of the settlement here, but Importantly, the Sacklers have agreed to give up their equity interests in Purdue, meaning that they'll no longer be the owners. And they've agreed to provide a settlement cash contributions of $4.325 billion. In exchange, they would be released from opioid-related liabilities related to Purdue. And this means releases from claims held by the Purdue bankruptcy estate 
as well as claims held by third parties. So this is the third party release that's gotten so much attention. Under the plan's channeling injunction, all opioid claims against the Sacklers and against Purdue would be channeled to the trusts. So that's the real problem of the parties who objected to plan confirmation and the focus of Judge McMahon's decision, right? The release of the Sackler family and the related trust from opioid claims without, you know, they don't want to see a stop sign put in um, their ability to chase down the Sackler family wherever they go. Exactly. Um, so if you have a Purdue related opioid claim against the Sackler family, you would no longer be able to sue the Sackler family under the terms of the plan. Instead, your claim would be channeled to the applicable trust and you would only be able to recover from the trust according to the piece of the pie that the trust gets under the plan. So, yeah, so just to clarify, you know, this is this is what we call a non-consensual release of third party claims, meaning that it's imposed whether or not the releasing parties agree to it or not. If you're a third party with a claim against the sectors covered by this release under the plan, you can no longer pursue any litigation against them at all. There's no opportunity to say you disagree and get a different treatment or continue that litigation against the Sackler in another forum through an opt-out, I guess. Judge Robert Drain, the bankruptcy judge overseeing the Purdue case, held on held a trial on confirmation of the plan, and he ultimately confirmed the plan last September. The U.S. trustee, nine states, and the District of Columbia opposed plan confirmation, arguing that the non-consensual third-party releases of claims against the Sacklers was unlawful. What did Judge Drain say about these arguments below and maybe contrast that with what happened ultimately on appeal? Judge Drain rejected the plan objector's arguments and confirmed the plan, including the non-consensual third-party release of the Sacklers. Uh, the plan objectors had attacked the Sackler release on many, many grounds. They argued that the release was not authorized by statute, that it was unconstitutional, for example, because it violates opioid claimants' due process rights, that the bankruptcy court lacks constitutional authority and subject matter jurisdiction to approve the release, um, many other arguments, such as that the release would infringe on the police power claims held by the states. Uh, the plan objectors also argued that granting a release to the Sacklers here just isn't justified under the facts of the case and would constitute an abuse of the bankruptcy process. So Judge Drain rejected all of these challenges to the Sackler release, and he concluded that the Sackler settlements were necessary to the plan, that these settlements were fair and reasonable, and that it was necessary and appropriate for him to approve the non-consensual third-party release of the Sacklers. There was a certain reluctance to the confirmation decision. You know, Judge Drain said that he really wished that the plan provided for more, but he wouldn't jeopardize what the plan did provide by not confirming the plan. Yeah, so after Judge Drain's confirmation ruling, the objecting states and the U.S. trustee appealed and got a second bite at the apple by bringing up these arguments to the Southern District of New York. On December 16th, Judge Colleen McMahon shook up the bankruptcy world and issued an opinion that vacated the confirmation order and invalidated these third-party releases for the Sacklers. Her ruling ended up being pretty narrowly focused, not reaching many of the issues raised on appeal, right? 
Right. So we talked earlier about all the different arguments that the plan objectors raised to challenge the release of the Sackler family. But Judge McMahon's ruling was really a two-issue opinion with two key conclusions. First, she held that bankruptcy courts lack statutory authorization to approve non-consensual third-party releases outside of the asbestos context. She also ruled that the non-consensual releases in favor of the shareholders here were not constitutionally core under the Supreme Court's 2011 Stern versus Marshall opinion, and that bankruptcy courts lack constitutional authority to issue a final order approving such releases. Uh, she was also clear that her ruling that these releases weren't permitted applied to what she called a very narrow range of claims. Uh, so these are claims that are direct claims held by third parties against the Sacklers. This was in contrast to what she called derivative claims. Derivative claims are claims that would render the Sacklers liable because of Purdue's actions. But direct claims, the target of, of her opinion and the ruling and ruling that uh, the releases were not permissible, the direct claims are claims that are not derivative of Purdue's liability, but they're based on the Sacklers' own individual liability. Yeah, so our fellow bankruptcy of aficionado, Elizabeth Warren, and others in Congress thought legislation might be needed to bar the Sacklers and other similarly situated non-debtors from getting releases until the district court stepped in. Congressional action, or the lack thereof, ended up being pretty important to Judge McMahon's reasoning. Can you, we get a little bit more on the, into the rationale for her decision? Sure. Judge McMahon's opinion hinges on the fact that there's one provision in the bankruptcy code that explicitly authorizes third-party releases, and it only applies to asbestos cases. So that's Section 524G of the bankruptcy code, which was passed by Congress in 1994. Specifically, she zooms in on the language of Section 524G, and she says that this language plainly indicates that Congress believed the provision created an exception to what would otherwise be the applicable rule. So um, going to go into statute nerd mode for a minute. Yeah, and we forgive you. Thank you. And, and home in on this language at the beginning of section 524G. That provision begins notwithstanding the provisions of section 524E. And then it goes on to describe the injunction. So Judge McMahon says the, that the word notwithstanding suggests that the type of injunction Congress was authorizing in 524G would be barred by 524E in the absence of the statute. So she's saying that 524G gave us a specific situation under which these non-consensual third-party releases could be authorized, but it's an exception to an otherwise applicable rule. And since Congress passed 524G in 1994, she said, it's been deafeningly silent on the subject. So in other words, Congress hasn't offered us any other exceptions to the, other, to the generally applicable rule that such releases are not permitted. Judge McMahon then goes on to consider whether the US Supreme Court has considered the issue of the non-consensual release of non-derivative claims 
She says that the high court hasn't answered this question. And then she turns to precedent from the Second Circuit, which is binding on the SDNY. Uh, crucially, Judge McMahon concludes that the Second Circuit has never answered this exact question about whether the bankruptcy code authorizes non-consensual third-party releases. The leading case on this topic, Metro Media, uh, saw the Second Circuit vacate approval of a plan and then declined to remand for further consideration because the appeal had become equitably moot. So she, so Judge McMahon reads Metro Media to say the, that the question of non-consensual third-party releases in the Second Circuit is unsettled, except in asbestos cases where Congress has provided us with statutory authority to grant them. But uh, the other cases that the plan supporters in Purdue cite to, to, sit, to argue that the non-consensual third-party releases of the Sacklers are justified, Judge McMahon says those, those other cases were decided on non-statutory grounds. So the Second Circuit has not answered the question. Wow, that's a pretty big open question. So I get at the risk of getting further into the statutory weeds, um, when Judge Drain approved the Sackler release, he relied on Section 105A, you know, the Bankruptcy Code's uh, equitable enabling provision and sections 1123B6, as well as a handful of other provisions. So, um, you know, section 105 states that a court may issue any order, process, or judgment that is necessary or appropriate to carry out the provisions of this title. And, you know, that's this necessary and appropriate language kind of invokes the equitable powers of the bankruptcy court. And section 1123B6 states that a plan may include any other appropriate position not inconsistent with the applicable provisions of this title. But Judge McMahon said that section 105 and section 1123 weren't enough to support these re releases. It seems like a couple billion dollars being thrown into the pot seems pretty necessary and appropriate for you know, Purdue Pharma's victims. Right, but Judge McMahon points to language in Metro Media saying that Section 105A, so that's your uh, broad equitable powers provision, doesn't create substantive rights and that powers that a bankruptcy court has under 105A must derive ultimately from uh, some other provision of the bankruptcy code. And she finds that there aren't other provisions of the bankruptcy code. That would, that would justify imposing such a release. Um, she also points out that in two recent cases, the Supreme Court has held in different contexts, they, they weren't ruling on non-consensual third-party releases specifically, but the, in those uh, two recent cases, the Supreme Court held that a bankruptcy court lacks the power to award relief that varies or exceeds the protections contained in the bankruptcy code. Not even in rare cases, and not even when those orders would help facilitate a particular reorganization. Um, we won't get into the details, but she relies on the Supreme Court's 2014 Law versus Siegel opinion and the 2017 Jevic opinion on this point. And, uh, Judge McMahon rejects Judge Drain's position that uh, statutory provisions like 105A, like 1123B6, 
and a handful of others give him residual authority to approve the releases. Each of those cited sections, she says, only gives the bankruptcy court the power to enter orders that would implement other substantive provisions of the bankruptcy code, but there aren't other substantive provisions of the bankruptcy code that would authorize the releases. And not only does Judge McMahon say that the bankruptcy court doesn't have these residual powers, she says, well, they couldn't authorize the releases of the Sacklers when the releases themselves also contravene specific provisions of the bankruptcy code. Uh, so on this point, she says that the Sackler release discharge, would discharge the Sacklers from debts that they couldn't obtain if they if they filed for bankruptcy themselves. How how Jevick and Siegel are really putting a, a clamping down on a bankruptcy court's uh, authority. But so while this decision primarily rested on a lack of a statutory basis for these releases. There was some limited engagement with the bankruptcy court's constitutional jurisdiction. I can see it already. This case is going to be a great textbook example to explain core versus related to jurisdiction. Can you give us a little bit more on that, Karen, please? Yeah, this came up in Judge McMahon's discussion of the standard of review, where she concluded that the bankruptcy court lacks constitutional authority to enter a final judgment releasing the claims covered by the Sackler release. So the question here is whether the claims are core, meaning bankruptcy proceedings that arise under or arise in Chapter 11, or whether they're non-core, meaning they're related to a Chapter 11 case, but they don't arise under or arise in Title 11. A bankruptcy court lacks the constitutional authority to enter a final judgment in a proceeding over which it only has related to subject matter jurisdiction, unless all parties consent. So that's that's under the US Supreme Court's 2011 Stern v. Marshall decision. And so she examined the third party claims that would be released by the Sackler release. So the direct claims that we talked about earlier. And she said, these are not third party claims that stem from Purdue's bankruptcy. They're not claims that can be resolved in the bankruptcy claims allowance process. These are claims that existed before the bankruptcy. Also, the third party release would effectively extinguish the claims, finally adjudicate the claims. And they're the equivalent of a final judgment for stern purposes. So Judge Drain didn't have the power to enter an order finally approving them. Uh, she also said that Judge Drain committed an error when he said that the releasers were core because they were part of Purdue's plan of reorganization. She did, however, you know, on a slightly different issue, but related issue, uh, say that when it came to related to jurisdiction, uh, the, the bankruptcy court did have um, subject matter jurisdiction based on the conceivable effects test. So, I mean, the, the upshot of all of this is that uh, she said that she was going to review many of Judge Drain's conclusions de novo, including um, certain factual conclusions. But since nobody uh, really challenged Judge Drain's factual findings, uh, the district court didn't disturb the bankruptcy court's factual findings. Still, it's an important ruling when it comes to the bankruptcy court's constitutional authority. Yeah, just uh, you know, a good reminder that uh, the district courts are always looking down to uh, supervise the bankruptcy courts below. So, 
After confirmation was vacated, the parties are now back in mediation, which may affect what's next. Ironically, given Judge Drain's concerns about disturbing the deal in hand, there's now a prospect of a, quote, substantial increase to the settlement. What can you tell us about that? Well, in the wake of Judge McMahon's opinion, the Purdue debtors um, announced that they're now pursuing a dual track process. They're appealing her ruling along with the other plan supporters, but they're also exploring potential alternatives to the plan in negotiations with the other case parties. The Second Circuit has accepted the appeal of Judge McMahon's ruling and ordered expedited briefing with oral arguments that would take place sometime in late April. Um, and, you know, there's already some movement on the appeal. So we're recording today on a Wednesday, February 9th. The appellant's briefs to the Second Circuit are due this Friday. So in parallel with that appeals process, uh, the case parties are also engaging in negotiations over a potential plan modification. And on January 31st, Judge Shelley Chapman, who's the mediator in the Purdue cases, announced that the mediation parties, that means the Sacklers and the nine objecting states in the District of Columbia, are close to an agreement in principle that provides for substantial additional consideration, incremental to the $4.325 billion provided for under the plan. Uh, so that means that those mediation parties are now close to an agreement in principle that would see more than Sacklers contributing more than the $4.3 billion that they've agreed to previously. Uh, this Tuesday, February 8th, Judge Chapman said in another filing, the mediation parties are even closer to a deal. And mediation has now been extended to the middle of February. Well, it'll be really interesting to see how these things play out on these two tracks in the coming weeks. I was really looking forward for the second circuit to answer all these fundamental questions that we've been wondering about for so long, but perhaps we won't see a second circuit opinion after all. If that happens, I guess Judge McMahon's opinion will only be binding on Judge Drain in the Purdue case, although there is potential, it is potential persuasive authority across the nation, as we'll see in some of the cases we uh, take up later in this presentation. Absolutely. And, you know, now practitioners in the SDNY know what Judge McMahon's position on non-consensual third-party releases is in the event that they have a Chapter 11 plan with non-consensual releases that are challenged on appeal. So they do have that new information about her view on the issue. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting to see some recent reporting from our colleagues on the reporter team on the Grupo Aeromexico case about how the debtors were incentivized to settle once an appeal brought by Invictus Global Management was assigned to Judge McMahon. So it seems like the perception is that she won't tolerate shenanigans that depend on stretching the bankruptcy code. Um, as for implications more broadly, we have to, we've begun to see reverberations in other cases such as in Asena, which David will take up next. Thanks, Kevin. So you're up next, David. The stakes are a bit lower here in the retail context, unless you're a huge fan of Ann Taylor or a member of the securities class action group that brought the confirmation appeal. However, we do seem to see a bit more of an inkling about how Purdue may disrupt standard bankruptcy practice. Anyway, if you could set us up with the facts and how Asena deals with third-party releases. And most importantly, let me know if I'm pronouncing it right. Asena? Yeah, yeah, that's right, Mike. Thanks. Um, 
So it was a Senna in my head for a very long time. So I'm still getting used to uh, recently learning that it's a Cena. So apologies in advance if I mispronounce it during our conversation. But um, yeah, certainly less dramatic background, like you said, uh, particularly when, when compared to Purdue. Uh, but it's an, it's an interesting opinion that we'll get into. Um, so retail business, uh, former owner of several well-known brands like Ann Taylor, Loft, Lane Bryant, a few others, uh, formerly Dress Barn, which is, I think, how they got their start. They liquidated that before the bankruptcy, um, which they filed in July 2020. And they used the bankruptcy, they used the Chapter 11 process to sell off all their brands through a series of Section 363 sales, uh, all of which closed during the case. So by the time they get to the plan phase of the case, all that's left to do is to distribute the proceeds to creditors. So we have a straight up liquidating plan. It gets confirmed in February 2021 over the objection of the U.S. trustee and those those lead plaintiffs you mentioned, who are lead plaintiffs in a securities class action against two former officers um, of the of the company. And both of them appeal. So they both of the, the U.S. trustee and the plaintiffs objected to the third party releases in the plan, um, as well as the uh, exculpation provision, which we won't talk a whole lot about. Um, so, you know, this is not a mass tort case. Obviously, this is not a case where um, there's a whole lot of litigation liabilities against owners or third parties that they're trying to wipe out. There is this class action, securities class action against former officers. Uh, which was the lead plaintiff's problem with third-party release. But uh, more generally, this is just a very broad third-party release provision uh, that we'll talk about. So uh, high level, the the opinion was a a bit more complex uh, in a way than Purdue, and then it had several components rather than sort of like the two-issue ruling we got from Judge McMahon. Um, But, you know, so several components to it, but I'll, I'll really boil it down to three main parts uh, that relate to the releases themselves. So first, similar to Purdue, uh, the district court, the Virginia district court found that a Stern versus Marshall violation, constitutional violation, and then the court lacked constitutional authority to approve the third party releases. And that included a finding that the, quote, releasing parties did not consent to adjudication of their claims by the bankruptcy court. So this issue of consent kind of pervades um, multiple components of this opinion, including the second piece, which is a finding by the district court that the third party releases did not meet the applicable Fourth Circuit test. It's a 2011 decision called Behrman versus National Heritage Foundation, sort of the uh, Fourth Circuit equivalent to Metro Media that Karen talked about in a way. Um, and consent was an issue here. So part of this ruling was finding that the releasing parties uh, did not consent to the releases based on their failure to opt out uh, of the releases in the plan. And we'll talk about that opt-out mechanism. So then the third major piece as it relates to releases of uh, the opinion was that the third-party releases may and should be severed from the plan. So that's kind of an interesting piece of it that's that's pretty different from Purdue. Um, Number of other components to the to the ruling, um, we won't get into them today. But it's the the court concluded that the appeal was not equitably moot, that the exculpation provision was too broad, needed to be cut back, and that the securities plaintiff appellants lacked standing to prosecute the appeal because they opted out of the releases. Now that ended up not mattering for purposes of the decision because the U.S. trustee did have standing and had raised the same objections on appeal. 
Okay. Well, so what's the real take home here? Anything more than an indication of a broader trend of scrutinizing these releases? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, so as to the constitutional part of the ruling, I, I, I would say generally that uh, Judge Novak's stern analysis, just Judge David Novak, the, the Eastern District of Virginia, uh, his Stern versus Marshall analysis or his constitutional analysis was very similar to Judge McMahon's in Purdue. Um, so I'm not going to rehash that analysis that, that Karen already covered um, pretty thoroughly and clearly in, in for Purdue. So, um, you know, one thing that we got here in Asina that's a little different is a greater focus on the issue of due process and consent. So I've already touched on that. We'll get into that a little bit more. But uh, the, the debtors had attempted to sidestep uh, both the Stern analysis, the constitutional question, as well as the Fourth Circuit's Bierman test by arguing that the releases should be deemed consensual based on the plan's opt-out mechanism. That's the opt-out mechanism that was not uh, in Purdue. So under the Asina plan, parties who voted to reject the plan or abstain from voting were deemed to be, quote, releasing parties. I'll use that term a lot. Those are the parties deemed to give the third-party release. So you reject, you don't vote, you're a releasing party unless you submit a form opting out of the releases or actually file an objection to the plan uh, objecting to the releases. So Judge Novak said that opt-out mechanism wasn't enough to get a scene out of having to satisfy either Stern or Behrman. Um, so they used the same, uh, they, they relied on the opt-out mechanism to get around both tests, but it, it's sort of different depending on which test you're looking at. So to get around Stern, the debtors would have had to show that parties consented to the bankruptcy court's adjudication of their claims. Um, core versus non-core doesn't matter if you, you know, even if it's a non-core claim, you can consent to the, to the bankruptcy court adjudicating it. Um, so they argue the opt-out me mechanism got them around that test. And then to get around Beerman, they would have had to show consent to the releases themselves. Um, so Judge Novak held that the opt-out mechanism or the method of inaction or silence on the part of creditors isn't enough for either purpose. So he had to get into uh, and the, the debtors had to show that they satisfied Stern and Beerman. So this this is kind of basically the same kind of opt-out, opt-in, opt-out fight that we've seen in variety of forms over the years. Um, I mean, what else is interesting here? I mean, the part of the appeal limiting exculpation to estate fiduciaries was also pretty standard. Um, can you walk us through what the court found was problematic with the releases beyond kind of these constitutional issues? Yeah, uh, so a lot of it had to do with um, the, the factual record uh, supporting supporting approval of the releases or the lack thereof. So um, having found that the releases were not consensual, the district court you know, dove into that Fourth Circuit 2011 Beerman case, which has a seven-factor test uh, that's meant to determine how integral the releases are to the plan. So the opinion explains uh, that the that Beerman and Stern are interrelated because you know the way that Judge Novak set it up is Stern says that um, you can't bankruptcy court can't adjudicate something that's not integral to the plan. It's already used for you know another word for core. Uh, and the Beerman test is meant to get at how integral the releases are to the plan. So, so that's the way that Judge Novak set it up and kind of harmonized those, those two. Um, not going to get into the seven-factor test, even though the opinion did in, in a lot of depth, but 
those factors look at things like identity of interest between the debtor and the third party, whether the third party has contributed anything to the reorganization, how do the impacted class or classes vote, things like that. Um, so the district court took issue with the bankruptcy court for not analyzing those factors. And after conducting its own analysis, the, the district court unsurprisingly found Behrman was not satisfied. Um, so the releases that I already kind of uh, alluded to this, but the releases in Asina were problematic in, in a different way. And this relates to both Behrman and Stern. Uh, that is in their breadth. And then the converse, uh, on the other hand, lack of depth in the analysis supporting their approval. So that that went both for the factual record that the debtors put up um, to support their case that these should be approved, and then also the lack of depth in the bankruptcy courts analysis that these were approvable. Um, so <clears throat> the district court's opinion goes a bit further into the, into the weeds than the sort of binary yes/no of Purdue. Um, so the Asina court, Judge Novak said that both Stern and Beerman required detailed factual find, findings and criticized the bankruptcy court for not doing that. So, for example, and the, he, he spends a lot of pages on this on this subject, but for just one example, as part of the Stern analysis, Judge Novak said that the bankruptcy court should have analyzed whether it had jurisdiction to adjudicate each released claim, um, which Judge Novak acknowledged would have been a quote, Herculean task, given the sheer breadth of the, of the releases. But he said at the same time, even just a cursory review of the release provision itself makes clear that the released claims or the claims they wanted to be released against third parties all fall outside the bankruptcy court's constitutional purview. So as, as examples, Judge Novak highlighted several hypothetical claims that just had no relation whatsoever to the bankruptcy cases. Um, but that would nonetheless have been covered as released claims under the actual language of the release provisions in the plan. So things like former employee, <clears throat> excuse me, harassment claims, or another specific example we gave was uh, a slander action by a former employee of the company's lenders against a current employee of the company. Obviously, these things have nothing to do with the bankruptcy, but they would have been covered by the third party release. Um, then there was the issue of severability, which I think is, is one of the more interesting pieces of the opinion, and it's kind of unique to Asina here. So the debtors had argued that the third-party releases could not be severed from the plan without the whole thing falling apart. Uh, district court obviously disagreed and did sever the releases, and that was largely based on Judge no Novak's conclusion that the consequence of the Stern versus Marshall constitutional violation was that the bankruptcy court's confirmation order should be treated as a report and recommendation to the district court, basically a proposed confirmation order. So if the bankruptcy court lacked constitutional authority to approve these releases, then this order could not have been anything more than a recommendation to the district court. So that's how he opted to treat it. And that means it's no longer a final confirmation order. So this impacted the severability analysis because the plan had a uh, provision called a non-severability provision that said before confirmation, if the court finds any provision to be unenforceable, the rest of the plan still stands without it. But after confirmation, only the debtors can decide to sever a provision. And the debtors hung their hat on that at the district court on appeal saying that, um, you know, if you're going to strike down the releases, this whole plan goes away. So 
Judge Novak basically said, oh, like, okay, no problem. You know, I've done, I'll deal with that through treating this as a proposed confirmation order, report and recommendations. So he reasoned that uh, he's basically, you know, we don't have a confirmed plan anymore. We're pre-confirmation. I can step into the shoes of the bankruptcy judge. And now that, that provision's not a problem anymore. I can sever a uh, provision if I find it unenforceable. And obviously he found the non 30 non excuse me, the third-party releases to be unenforceable and void um, and opted to sever them, having decided that he could sever them. So he pointed out the whole construct of that provision, the non-severability provision, really shows that the releases were not necessary to the integrity of the plan, like the debtors had kept saying. You know, if they could be severed prior to confirmation, they must not have been so integral. Wow. Uh, this decision does seem a bit you know, scarier than Purdue from a practitioner's standpoint for a variety of reasons. I mean, the judge's language is a pretty damning indictment of the role of third-party releases generally. Um, you know, as one of his quotes was, uh, the releases represent the worst of this all too common practice as they have no bounds. The sheer breadth of the releases can only be described as shocking. Yeah, there's a lot of, of pretty dramatic rhetoric um, throughout this opinion uh, and really at oral argument in, in December, frankly. Um, but yeah, it really, this opinion suggests that there's, there's no longer this, this rubber stamp that we've seen on appeal uh, on what now seem to be standard, elaborate, released and releasing party definitions that include broad lists of groups. You know, there's uh, there's the current and former directors, managers, officers, and all of their successors, and everyone's related party. And then related party has its own definition with a list of of, of titles. So, um, you know, quite the opposite of a rubber stamp here. What we're seeing is that what uh, Judge Novak said that the third party releases in general should be reserved for rare and exceptional cases. Uh, and he went he went pretty strong on that. So he was extremely critical of the bankruptcy judges in the Richmond division of the Eastern District of Virginia, where this case was filed, um, for that exact kind of rubber stamping. So in fact, he pulled a statistic from the U.S. trustees brief saying that the Richmond division, just the division, not the entire Eastern District of Virginia, uh, joins the District of Delaware, SDNY, and the Houston division of the Southern District of Texas as the venue of choice for 91% of mega cases, mega chapter 11 cases. So Judge Novak uh, kind of latches onto that and suggests that the Richmond judges, uh, bankruptcy judges are contributing to a form shopping problem um, and actually went so far as directing that the case be remanded to a judge outside of the Richmond division um, on remand after his appeal. Uh, another point from the opinion with implications for cases in this district going forward and, and you know, probably in other districts as well, is Judge Novak makes a point to suggest that bankruptcy courts should always submit third-party releases to the district court for approval by way of a report and recommendation. He said this would be a, quote, preferable way to deal with the substantial constitutional issues at play with this with the use of this perilous tool speaking of of these uh, dramatic rhetoric and, and actually karen i think this exact topic has come up in purdue briefing uh, at the appellate level right yeah exactly the supporters of purdue plan of purdue's plan who asked the second circuit to review judge mcmahon's opinion uh brought up this two-level approach which is which is a consequence of Judge McMahon's 
conclusion that the bankruptcy court lacked authority, constitutional authority to enter a final order um, on the third party releases. They said, well, if the bankruptcy court lacks authority to enter a final order, that means that the bankruptcy court's uh, order would really be uh, in the nature of a report and recommendation to the district court. That would mean that the bankruptcy court's factual findings would be subject to de novo review by the district court. Basically, the, the result of Judge McMahon's ruling is that we're going to have to have a trial court proceeding in the bankruptcy court. Then we're gonna have another trial court proceeding before the district court. So this two level approach means that, um, means that going forward, bankruptcy cases will take longer and they'll be more expensive. Uh, that was one reason that they asked for appellate review. Yeah, it's a pretty daunting prospects for for debtors and and debtors professionals. Well, more expensive. That's that's some good news for practitioners as well. So um, so we've got that. So uh, just wrapping up things. Uh, so in rejecting the plan's non severability provision, which the court said was a you know, going back to some more great rhetoric, a hollow attempt to evade judicial review of the releases, at least the debtors didn't have to start from scratch. Yeah, that's right. So uh, definitely a different tack um, after after this appeal than produced. So rather than appeal the district court's opinion up another level, Estina and its creditors committee have opted to proceed with reconfirmation of the plan, uh, just minus the voided releases and with a tailored exculpation provision. Um, you know, it wasn't clear at first what they would do with the district court's opinion, given how strongly they had urged in their briefing and oral, at oral argument um, that the plan would just fall apart without the releases. But at the first bankruptcy court status conference after the appeal, uh, they show up and announce right away they're moving forward with the original plan, again, minus the releases, and filed a motion shortly after to that effect, uh, asking for a new confirmation order, which is scheduled to be heard on March 3rd. Wow. Well, at least the company can still get a confirmed plan in the end. But, you know, this again, you know, <laughs> the fact that they opted to revise and confirm the plan without the releases really seems to, again, undercut any credibility that the releases were any, in any way necessary or integral to the plan in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. J Judge Novak really called their bluff on that point in his decision, and they proved him right by opting to proceed with reconfirmation minus the releases. All right. Well, thank, thanks, David. Um, we were initially going to pontificate about the implication for a couple ongoing cases, including Malincrat, but um, the confirmation ruling in that case dropped late last week, about a month after its confirmation trial ended on January 6th. So, Karen, um, this is your case, so you're up again for this one. Um, so, for folks who have been closely following the results in Purdue and Asina, Malincrat coming out of the District of Delaware may come as a bit of a relief. Can you give us some big picture on the case and how third-party releases figured in there? Are third-party releases alive and how well are they doing in Delaware? Well, Malincrot's plan resolves the company's mass tort liability relating to opioids, but Malincrot's plan resolved many other types of liability as well. So it's not like Purdue, which pretty much only has liabilities in the form of opioid claims. And the plan objectors here challenged the plan on several grounds that had nothing to do with the third party releases. The releases weren't really front and center during the confirmation trial. Uh, but, you know, we should definitely talk about it 
today because it's Mallinckrodt was one of the first cases where the U.S. trustee attacked the third party releases by citing Purdue. However, this strategy didn't work. Judge John Dorsey, the Mallinckrodt bankruptcy judge, acknowledged that the Purdue and Asina courts came to different conclusions on the issue, but he wrote, I am applying the law of the Third Circuit, which has recognized that bankruptcy courts do have statutory and constitutional authority to approve a plan of reorganization that contains non-consensual third-party releases, albeit only in extraordinary cases. So Judge Dorsey approved both the non-consensual third-party release of opioid claims and the third-party release of non-opioid claims in the plan. And he found that the latter is consensual in light of the opt-out mechanism. Uh, in considering the opioid release, the judge rejected what he called thoughtful arguments from the U.S. trustee regarding jurisdiction and authority for the third-party releases. But he emphasized that only one single creditor out of hundreds of thousands actually objected to these releases of opioid claims. And he said that in that context, applying a blanket prohibition on non-consensual releases, quote, would simply not make sense. And he also pointed out that the Third Circuit has not explicitly commented on whether third-party releases would be appropriate in that context. But it has suggested that if they're appropriate anywhere, it would be in a mass tort case like this one. And on that point, he cited to the Third Circuit's continental decision. So that's a, that's a very different perspective on things than uh, in Asina. You know, here the third party releases are certain more, certainly more necessary because they resolve Mallinckrodt's mass tort liabilities. Yeah, so what's the take home here? Third party releases are viable, but in the opinion, there is some categorical and factual nuance uh, on their proprietary, as well as some other uh, issues of due process and consent. On the first of these points, we see the requisite exceptional case can include a mass tort context. But what, what did George Dorsey have to say about Section 524 and asbestos cases, which played so heavily in uh, the Purdue decision reasoning? Well, Judge Dorsey didn't say much about it because he concludes that Third Circuit precedent has already answered the question of statutory authorization. So he doesn't get into a detailed discussion of how to read the rest of the bankruptcy code in light of section 524, the way that Judge McMahon and Judge Novak did. Judge Dorsey does very briefly say that he's aware of the objection of the US trustee, which argued that uh, section 524E of the bankruptcy code should be read to preclude non-debtor releases. But you know, very different from the Purdue and Asina courts, he says, I disagree with the notion that releases are the equivalent of a discharge. And he acknowledges that uh, Purdue and Asina came to very different conclusions on that point. Remember Judge McMahon's reasoning that the third party release amounts to a final adjudication of the claim, an extinguishment of the claim. Judge Dorsey says, no, this is not an equivalent of a discharge. When it comes to consent and opt-outs, uh, 
here again, we, we should point out that there were two different types of third party releases at issue. So one was the non-consensual release of opioid claims. The other was the release of non-opioid claims, which uh, Judge Dorsey found to be consensual because releasing parties were given the opportunity to opt out. So he, Judge Dorsey has a very different view on consent than Judge Novak in Asina. Judge Novak said, you need affirmative consent. Judge Dorsey says that under the specific facts of this case, the opt-out mechanism is enough for consent. Uh, a, you know, an interesting twist in the opinion, I think, is also Judge Dorsey's emphasis on the number of objecting parties. When he discusses the opioid release, he points out that out of hundreds of thousands of creditors, only Rhode Island objected. So allowing Rhode Island to hold up plan confirmation, he says, it would be absurd. It would be a case of the tail wagging the dog. And uh, addressing the U.S. trustees and the U.S. and the SEC's arguments on consent when he dis when it came to the release of non-opioid claims, he doesn't he doesn't buy their arguments on consent and notice. He says that shareholders and creditors have an obligation to read their mail. So it's you know it's interesting here that Judge Dorsey focuses on objections not on no votes. Um, his approach is also very different from Judge McMahon's approach in Purdue. Remember, Purdue also has hundreds of thousands of creditors. Purdue only received a handful of objections, a handful of objections to plan confirmation related to the Sackler release. Uh, in the aggregate, you know, over 95% of votes were in favor of confirmation, there weren't a lot of objections, but that didn't matter very much to Judge McMahon. Um, it's pretty important to Judge Dorsey, though. Um, as for Section 105 and whether the equitable powers of the bankruptcy court enable enables him to approve the third party releases, uh, Judge Dorsey says that the non-consensual third party release of opioid claims seems to be precisely the situation envisioned by Section 105A of the Bankruptcy Code. Yeah, well, great. Thanks, Karen. Great summary. Um, one thing that comes to mind in light of these decisions is our venue considerations. I mean, Delaware might gain a bit of ground on the newcomer Virginia Bankruptcy Courts and the always competitive Southern District of New York, unless Malincrot joins the scrutiny train on appeal before the District Court or the Third Circuit. Any inkling if we're going to see an appeal here? Well, appeal, potential appeal seem quite likely. Um, the Akthar administrative claimants, Attestor and Humana have already appealed Judge Dorsey's administrative claims ruling, which was um, one major pillar holding up the plan. Malincrot has said that it affects to go, expects to go effective in the first half of this year. And once that happens, it's very likely the debtors will argue that any plan appeals have been mooted. I think the way to look at it is that for now, the venue calculation for Delaware hasn't changed because Judge Dorsey's decision was in line with what you'd expect in the district. Um, 
This is also, you know, broadly speaking, pretty unsurprising that you're not going to see a change in direction in law on third-party releases at the bankruptcy court level. That's you know, that's unlikely to be where you will see a doctrinal shift. Um, if a bankruptcy court rejects the third party release, it's much more likely to be because the court finds that under the specific facts, the release didn't satisfy the standard under the leading case in the circuit. Yeah, that's a great point, Karen. Um, all right, folks, let's uh, wrap up things up with a discussion of uh, um, broader concerns in some, in some other ongoing cases that also raise the specter of abuse of the bankruptcy process. Obtaining releases or other protections for non-debtors are a particular concern in a set of so-called Texas two-step cases that we've been following closely here at Reorg, most notably the case of LTL Management, an entity created by Johnson & Johnson in furtherance of segmenting and resolving the company's baby or talcum powder liabilities through the bankruptcy process. David, uh, since this is one of your coverage names, can you explain what intarnation a Texas two-step case is and why it raises similar concerns as in Purdue and some of these other cases? I like your use of uh, some Texas lingo there. Um, so yeah, the Texas two-step, as it's come to be known, is, uh, as the name suggests, a two-step process by which a company spends off its tort liabilities through a maneuver called a divisional merger uh, under Texas law. That's step one. And then step two files that new entity for chapter 11. Uh, so the, the, the divisional merger step, uh, it divides one company toward liabilities into two new companies, one to hold the liabilities. You call that one bad co. Um, and the second one getting everything else, you call that one good co. So, uh, and then bad co gets filed for chapter 11. Everyone else stays out, out of the, stays out of bankruptcy court. So it raises similar concerns as third-party releases because uh, if it works, it, it allows a company to get the benefits of bankruptcy, in this case, a channeling injunction under Section 524G, without actually having to subject the entire enterprise to the bankruptcy process. So the parent company and good code don't get filed, but still get the benefit of the injunction to deal with the tort liabilities that were previously under their corporate umbrella. So really, it's it's a lot like the Sacklers and Purdue. They, they didn't file Chapter 11, but tried to get the benefit of the channeling injunction through the shareholder release provision. So we've now seen a handful of these Texas two-step cases, and tort claimants are, are challenging the strategy across the board. Wow. I mean, I'm a huge fan of bankruptcy, but this seems like an extreme legal innovation. On one hand, these cases seem to involve, for the most part, the type of asbestos liabilities that are expressly potentially subject to resolution via channeling injunction under the bankruptcy code's express provisions. So we don't have the you know, same statutory problem that blew up Purdue, but creating a Frankenstein corporation for the sole purpose of filing for bankruptcy does seem kind of artificial. How are these cases going and what sort of challenges are we seeing? I mean, We've already seen some movement on the legislation level, as alluded to earlier. Um, Riar did a story yesterday on the Non-Debtor Release Prohibition Act. You know, I think that's a great piece of uh, name for a piece of legislation. Very, very, very direct. Uh, uh, and you know that, uh, and uh, these Texas two-step cases got some attention uh, from Congress in a subcommittee meeting yesterday uh, on this act. Um, there was some great language in there from the talc claimants council saying that the two-step was a loophole that could swallow the bankruptcy code. Anyway, uh, 
How is how is the Texas two step dance going out in the field, David? Well, yeah. So in addition to LTL, uh, Reorg has been covering uh, a few other cases: DBMP, Aldrich Pump, and Bestwall, uh, all in the Western District of North Carolina, um, which all filed before LTL, and are all relatively small cases, but. What we're seeing is tour claimants taking different approaches, trying to uh, unwind the divisional mergers that preceded these bankruptcies. So the the short answer, how is the dance going? Is that we're, we're in the middle of it and we're, we're, we're seeing what's going to happen. Uh, we haven't seen any of these challenges fully play out. So, uh, But in fact, in the DBMP, DBMP case, uh, the court is scheduled to rule on Thursday, February 10th on motions to dismiss the tout claimants, uh, excuse me, the tort claimants, the asbestos claimants, substantive consolidation lawsuit in that case. And that that would effectively undo that divisional merger by consolidating the bad co-debtor with the good co-non-debtor entity. Um, so the debtor and good co in that case have asked the court to dismiss this subcon lawsuit and Reorg will be covering that decision. Um, that's Thursday, February 10th in the morning. So we'll, we'll see if that particular challenge to the Texas two-step tr- strategy is going to be allowed to continue forward in the DBMP case. I don't know when this podcast will go live, but uh, if it's if it's after 9:30 a.m. on on February 10th, check out uh, tune into Reorg see if see yeah, if we'll, come out. We'll, we'll be out with this podcast on Friday, so definitely looking forward to. Um, your story before then, David. Good, good. So, and, and then we have LTL, which is, you know, the big one. I, I mentioned that those other cases in North Carolina are all, are all relatively small. Um, but LTL, of course, is uh, the J&J subsidiary. So it's newly created sub of J&J to, created to house the company's talc liabilities arising out of the baby product, the uh, baby powder product. Um, after years of litigation over whether the baby powder causes ovarian cancer and or mesothelioma. So LTL filed in, in the Charlotte bankruptcy court where those other cases are pending uh, back in October, but actually got kicked to New Jersey in November when the Charlotte judge decided that venue was improper in North Carolina. There's a lot of fighting over that. So you know we've seen lots of litigation in the case, and a lot of that's culminating next week. Uh, starting on Monday in a trial on two motions to dismiss the case by the uh, TAL claimants committees in that case, and then another set of TAL claimants as well. So as opposed to trying to unwind the divisional merger through substantive consolidation like DBMP or uh, bringing a fraudulent transfer lawsuit, the TAL claimants and LTL are going straight for case dismissal, just trying to get them kicked out of the bankruptcy court. And they're arguing the case should be dismissed as a bad faith filing because according to the tout claimants, J&J, you know, an otherwise extremely healthy company, benefits of Chapter 11 without actually filing for bankruptcy itself. So Reorg will, will be covering that trial uh, starting Monday, February, February 14th. It's expected to last about a week. And uh, Judge Kaplan, the bankruptcy judge, said he's He's committed to to getting a decision out uh, by the end of February. Wow, exciting stuff, David. Um, I we we might have to have a, a, a another deep dive on on the Texas two step once uh, once all the music stops. Uh, anyway, well, thanks Absolutely. again, Karen. Thanks, David. Um, and uh, uh, it was a really really great dive into a really arcane subjects. So thank you both. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. 
You can find all our podcasts on the reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Friday.